and welcome to Relevant History. I'm Dan Toller, and we're back. This is part two of what will most likely be a three-part episode on the Delhi Sultanate in northern India. So if you want to go back to the previous episode, uh, you will catch part one if you haven't heard it already. Otherwise, please enjoy part two of Crossroads of Civilization. Now, we left off in 1206 A.D., and that year was important because it marked the death of a man named Muhammad of Gore. You may remember from part one we talked about him, right? He was the Afghan-Turkic warlord who invaded northern India, among many other places, and reimposed Islam on much of it and introduced the area, much of the area, to Islam. And uh, although he was successful in India, Muhammad of Gore tried to conquer too much land in Central Asia, fell afoul of an opponent named the Khwarizmian Shah, who was a guy you really didn't want to mess with, and he ended up losing a war and dying. But Muhammad of Gore took an unusual step before he died. See, rather than leave his kingdom to any relatives he took the unusual step of leaving his Indian lands in particular uh, to his slaves. And this created what we now call the Slave Dynasty of Delhi. This is also sometimes called the Mamluk Dynasty. Mamluk is just the Arabic word for slave, and I'll be calling it the Slave Dynasty because... Mamluk dynasty gets a little confusing because you have the Mamluks in Egypt later who were also slaves, so we'll just we'll stick with slave dynasty. And this dynasty would actually be the first of five dynasties to rule this new kingdom that will ultimately be called the Delhi Sultanate. The first of these slaves is actually the military governor of the area. That sounds weird, that a military governor would be a slave. Keep in mind that these are very different times, and slaves could very often outrank free people in society in many contexts. This slave named Kutib al-Din Aibak he already outranked most people in the empire other than Muhammad of Gore himself, and now he finds himself the king of a new kingdom. Now, Ibak was born in Turkestan, roughly modern-day Turkmenistan, and in this place he had served as the master of horse, a very important senior military position, to one of Muhammad of Gore's enemies. And when Muhammad of Gore defeated that enemy in battle, he was so impressed with Ibak in particular that while he did enslave him, as he did with all the captured peoples, he made him an officer in his own military. And Ibak uh, 
worked his way up to high command, uh, ultimately coordinating Muhammad of Gore's troops at the Second Battle of Tarori in 1192. We talked about that in the last episode, where Muhammad of Gore had defeated the Rajputs in battle and crossed the Indus River into India proper. Well, Ibok had been there. And while his exact age is unclear, by the time Muhammad of Gore dies in 1206, Ibok is somewhere between 55 and 60 years old, roughly. Now, he is based out of Delhi, which is a city in the north-central part of modern-day India. Uh, this is the imperial military headquarters for India, and uh, it will remain Ibok's military headquarters, but as an independent ruler, he needs a political capital, too. So he chooses the city of Lahore in modern-day Pakistan. If you look at a map of the Indian subcontinent, this makes a lot of sense. Delhi is sort of towards the east. Lahore is sort of towards the west. They're both towards the north because right, the part of India that Ibach controls is like the northern third roughly at this point. So he's got a political and a military capital pretty well evenly spaced through his new kingdom. Now, before coming to power, Ibach has always been known as a military leader. Right, whether working for the Gurid dynasty or against them, he was always a man of the sword. But as sultan, he is a generous ruler. His moniker, his epitaph, if you will, is actually Lakbaksh, which roughly translates to liberal donator. Among other works, he would sponsor the Kuwatul Islam Mosque, which is the first mosque built in Delhi. And while this mosque is a ruin today in the 21st century, it does remain at the center of a complex with dozens of other historical and religious buildings that cropped up in that area. And, well, Ibach started that. He's known as a patron of the arts and he pays generous stipends to a number of scholars. And unfortunately for Ibach, he doesn't actually get to enjoy being sultan for very long. In the year 1210, he's playing a game of polo when his horse trips, and he is killed instantly when the saddle crushes his ribcage. And after Ibach's death, there would be a very brief struggle for succession. Another slave named Aram Shah would take over immediately. He would use the patronymic title Bin Ibach, sort of a propaganda move to pretend that he was a son of Ibach, but he almost certainly wasn't. And regardless, it doesn't really matter. The real power in the Delhi Sultanate at this point, at least with Ibach dead, uh, well, that power lies with the Turkic ruling nobility. 
When Muhammad of Gore had invaded, he didn't just bring Ibok, he brought all kinds of people, right? All kinds of military leaders and civilian administrators who had been living in India for quite some time now and formed this upper class. And they decide to side with a different fake son of Ibok named Iltutmish. And Iltutmish would reign for 26 years. He would reign from 1210 till 1236. So despite the fact that Ibok was the first individual leader of the Delhi Sultanate, Iltutmish in many ways was a lot more influential. Right? He laid so much of the groundwork for what would happen later on. And as with several of these slave dynasty sultans, he has indeed spent much of his life as a slave. See, as a young man, Iltutmish's own brother had sold him into slavery. But Iltutmish had the good fortune of being purchased by none other than Ibok, who saw some potential in this man and made him a military governor. And Iltutmish would ultimately marry Ibok's daughter, which made him the sultan's son-in-law at the time of his death. So he's a fake son, but he's a real son-in-law, and more importantly, his rise very much mirrors Ibok's. Right? Ibok is originally a slave of Muhammad of Gore, is put in a position of responsibility, is then given the kingdom upon his master's death, while Ibok pays that down the road, not intentionally, with a little help after his death by the ruling nobility here in the Delhi Sultanate, but the same thing happens with Iltutmish. Now, Iltutmish is notable for a couple of reasons. First, he would move the political capital of the Delhi Sultanate from Lahore to Delhi. Right. So he would keep both of his military and political capitals there, and that's how it would stay for the most part through most of the history of the Delhi Sultanate. And more importantly, he would be one of the very few Asian leaders never to be conquered by the Mongols. In 1221, 11 years into Iltutmish's reign, a Central Asian leader named Jalal ad-Din Mingburnu, the last prince of the Khwarezmian Empire, he is defeated by the Mongols in battle, and he crosses into the Punjab region. That's in far western India. It's territory that technically belongs to Iltutmish, but he's in a bind. On the one hand, he doesn't want to fight Jalal al-Din. On the other hand, he can't help Jalal al-Din either. He can't actually allow him in officially as a refugee, because if he does, he will incur the personal wrath of Genghis Khan. It's a long story. Suffice it to say that the Khans had a personal grudge against this 
guy Jalal al-Din, and Iltutmish does not want to get in the middle of it. So he retains a policy of strict neutrality. And this, along with being protected by the Himalayas, it allows Iltutmish to avoid going to war with the Mongols. Meanwhile, the threat of any kind of potential attack or uprising from Jalal al-Din, well, that helps Iltutmish to keep many of his local nobles in line and loyal. Eventually, the issue sort of resolves itself. When the great Khan dies, Jalal al-Din moves back north to his old kingdom, and Iltutmish acts quickly uh, to ensure that he holds on to this Punjab region for good. He launches a series of lightning military strikes and captures a number of key forts west of the Indus, and... His efforts are so successful, and he defeats a number of local warlords, that the Abbasid governor of Sindh, the area in far western Pakistan, well, that governor for the illustrious Abbasid Caliphate, simply defects and switches sides, giving yet more land to Iltutmish and the Delhi Sultanate. And his authority does now extend across the entire northern half of the Indian subcontinent, from west to east. Before his death, Iltutmish would take a few other important steps. First, he would introduce Arabic coinage. This would further Islamicize the Delhi Sultanate's identity. Second, he would establish something called the Corps of Forty, Corps, C-O-R-P-S, like Marine Corps. Uh, This was a group of the most powerful nobles, and they served as a kind of parliament. After all, it was the nobles who had backed Iltutmish to begin with, so he institutionalizes this group of powerful nobles. And the last thing he does is he nominates an heir. His daughter, Raziat Udunya Wauldin, usually simply known as Razia. On a pedantic note, some people call her Sultana Razia. That's not accurate. A Sultana is the wife of a Sultan, and in her own lifetime, she was simply referred to as the Sultan. Now, Upon taking the throne in 1236, Razia was almost immediately opposed by the Turkish nobility. This is a very patriarchal society. For instance, they didn't even have a feminine form for the name of a national leader, right? Uh, So to offset this and gain support from somewhere... Razia appoints a number of non-Turkic nobles. She starts taking local Indians and raising them up. Usually land-owning people, people who were part of the old nobility before the Muslim invasion, but nonetheless 
This is significant because it means that most of her support through most of her reign comes from Indian people, not from this uh, Turkish ruling class that's ruling the country. In fact, a year after taking over in 1237, Razia has to put down a rebellion. But when she's successful, uh, nobody else seems to want to mess with her right away. She's able to concentrate on expanding the empire her father left her. Now, Razia would initially observe the modesty standards of the day. So she would wear a veil and she would hold audiences from behind a screen But by 1238, she was holding court as any sultan would. She was dressing as a man, which was quite scandalous in this society. And she even rode a war elephant in a military parade, which turned a number of heads. And it was indeed a combination of sexism and Turkish resentment against Indian nobility that would bring her down. And the last straw seems to have been her appointment of a slave named Yakuta as master of horse. Again, we see this important military position, this highest ranking position in the military, really. We see it becoming very important in our story. The reason this appointment of this slave named Yakuta is so controversial is... Not because he's a slave, right? We've seen that happen before. It's because he's not Turkish. He's Abyssinian. He's from Ethiopia. And this is completely unacceptable to the Turkish nobles. And they begin to organize a rebellion. In, in 1240, four years after Razia taking over as sultan, a governor named Altunia... Uh, In northwestern India, he launches a revolt in his province of Batinda. And Razia leads her army to put down the revolt, but she thinks that it's just a revolt by Altunia. She's unaware that a number of other nobles are also revolting and are waiting there to surprise and outnumber her. And When faced in battle by much higher than expected odds, she is defeated and imprisoned. But she's held in prison in Batinda, and meanwhile, a quorum of the Corps of Forty holds a meeting in Delhi, and they decide that they're going to appoint Razia's brother, uh, a fellow named Muiz Uddin Bahram, as the new sultan. Well, This isn't what Altunia wanted at all when he revolted. He wanted to become sultan himself, and Razia wants her power back, so something really weird happens, and it's unclear whether Altunia forces her or not, but what happens is uh, Altunia and Razia end up getting married, and together they lead an army from Bathinda down towards Delhi to try and take back the throne. And unfortunately, they are defeated in battle by Bahram, 
Their forces are scattered and they become refugees and they're forced to go into hiding in the countryside. And ironically, Razia, this lady sultan who appointed a bunch of Indian nobility to high positions, well, she is then killed by a Hindu mob in mid-October of 1240. At this point, Bahram, her brother, the son of Iltutmish, well, he is now the new sultan, and he is undisputed. But this whole incident of Razia being overthrown and war between the nobility has started a series of, if not civil wars, then feuds between various members of the nobility. And there is pillaging across the countryside and small-scale skirmishing. And in the meantime, the central administration suffers, the army suffers, and Bahram has a hard time defending his kingdom. As one example, the city of Lahore, the center of Islamic culture on the Indian subcontinent, well, that would be raided and pillaged by the Mongols in 1241. And as a result of that and several other failures, in May of 1242, less than two years after taking power, Bahram would be murdered by his own rebellious troops. The Corps of Forty goes back to work, and they now appoint Alauddin Masood, who is one of Razia's nephews, as the new sultan. This is not a particularly important figure, because he's more or less a figurehead. He's a notorious alcoholic and a partier, and the Forty think that he will be easy to control, but... Within four years, by 1246, Masood is sobered up a little bit, and he's actually trying to assert some control over the army. And the Mongol threat is continuing to grow, and the 40 don't really trust Masood, so they have him killed. And they appoint yet another young grandson of Iltutmish, a man named Nasiruddin Mahmud. But... The real power in the Delhi Sultanate will not be Mahmud. It will be Mahmud's father-in-law and legal guardian, Giyas Uddin Balban. And for the record, it seems like Mahmud is actually fine with this arrangement of being a figurehead. He's not really interested in world affairs. He is a deeply religious, deeply devout Muslim. He's uh, an ascetic, and he uh, denies himself a lot of things in life. For instance, in this polygamist society, he has only one wife, and he spends most of his time in prayer and meditation and in copying passages from the Quran and he famously doesn't even have any servants in his employment. He likes to live simply, so his wife, the Sultana, has to do all of the housekeeping. Balban, the real man in charge, well, he doesn't seem to mind his daughter being a virtual servant. 
Instead, he's busy taking over the Sultanate, and he fills the palace and the bureaucracy with his own family members and ensures that Mahmud remains a figurehead. But Balban isn't just some power-hungry guy, though. He also knows a thing or two about Mongols. He had been captured by them and enslaved by them as a young man before Iltutmish bought him and freed him. And he is determined that the Mongols never gain a foothold in India. To that end, he needs to maintain control, he needs to reform the army, and he needs to keep India strong and he gets a little bit more power than he even bargained for. See, when Mahmud becomes sultan in the year 1246, he's a relatively young man, and Balban is about 40 years old, so one would expect that Mahmud would outlive his father-in-law and eventually have to rule in his own right, but in fact, Mahmud dies relatively young in 1266, so... After 20 years of being the power behind the throne, at the age of 60, Balban takes the throne, and he does so very quickly of his own accord. He doesn't wait for the core of 40 to act, and then almost immediately, he actually abolishes the core of 40. And he justifies this by saying that the sultan is, quote, God's shadow on earth, unquote. He backs this up with a lot of new symbolism in the court. So, whereas before, the sultan would simply speak with other nobles, sort of as the first among equals, at least in terms of ceremony. Now, when visitors come, they have to prostrate themselves and kiss the sultan's feet. Balban is very much the absolute monarchist. Right? He's a Louis XIV type of guy. And to back this up, he makes a number of changes to the system in the Delhi Sultanate. Uh, for one thing, he reverses the policies uh, begun by Razia of incorporating Indian nobles into the government. As long as Balban is sultan, all new nobles and all new appointments to posts, all of those are going to come from the Turkish population. And at the same time, he's going to bring in elements of Persian culture that are popular among the Turkish people. He introduces a 19-day New Year's festival called Nauruz, which remains popular, by the way, in the 21st century. They still celebrate this festival in Iran and much of Central Asia. But Balban introduces this to northern India at this time. And number one, again, that is to impose Islamic cultural dominance, but it's also to demonstrate power. Right? He shows that he has the money and the generosity to fund this almost three-week-long festival every year. Balban establishes an espionage system. 
a spy network to keep an eye on all of his appointees and his nobles. So none of his people ever know who might be listening. They better be loyal. Now, a third thing Baban does is he reorganizes the army. Up until this point, up until 1266, the Delhi Sultanate's military was run on a feudal basis. It was run very similarly, in fact, to European militaries of the time, where you might have, say, the French king technically in charge, but all of his troops would be coming from, you know, the Count of so-and-so or the Duke of such-and-such, and in India, you have a fairly similar situation. The countryside is divided up into land holdings, right? Fiefs, which are run by emirs, who are figures who are comparable to counts in the European system. And these emirs are then responsible for maintaining a certain number of troops and bringing them into battle. But what's happening is these emirs are retiring wealthy and spending years living on their fiefs and, you know, getting away with the excuse that because they're old, they can't serve in the military. So the paper strength, so to speak, of the Delhi Sultanate's military is much higher than the number of troops that Balban is actually able to field. So he changes the military rules so that elderly emirs are forced to retire and give their fiefs to younger nobles so that those men can then come to war and bring their troops to war. Now, the elderly emirs, they're going to get pensions and everything. They're going to be taken care of. But the point is that the management of those fiefs is going to go to people of military age. And this allows him, number one, to expand the military and the number of troops, but also to better equip them uh, because he's able to raise more revenue. And to this end, Baban establishes a separate military department in his government, a department called the Diwani Ars, basically the Ministry of Defense, okay? This is strikingly modern. You do not see this kind of thing in Europe until a few centuries down the road. Well, here's Balban in the 1200s founding a ministry of defense in India. And while Balban does have a reputation as a hard-nosed guy, a lot of people appreciate this. We were talking a few minutes ago about how there was civil war under some of the previous sultans and a lot of disorder in the countryside. And, well, what happens when there's a breakdown in law and order is you get bandits and you get highwaymen hiding out in the mountains and robbing merchants and travelers, right? It has become a problem for the Delhi Sultanate. It has become dangerous for people to travel or to transport goods. So with this expanded army, Balban sends regular patrols across the countryside and goes on an extended campaign against bandits. And he gains a reputation for making the countryside safe again. 
under his rule, go from being scared to take a long journey, much less carry any valuables, to someone being able to walk the length of India wearing a bunch of gold jewelry and not have to worry about being robbed. And this army will eventually be used as Balban originally intended against the Khans. In 1285, for those of you keeping track at home, Balban is now 79 years old. In the year 1285, the Chagatai Khanate attacks across the foothills of the Himalayas into what is now Pakistan. Balban orders a defense across a line of fortresses and natural barriers. This is a strategy he's been working on for years, and he calls it blood and iron. And in this defense, the Mongols are defeated decisively at the Battle of the Bias River. This is a river in the Himalayan foothills where the Mongol horsemen try to cross, and the Delhi Sultanate's forces absolutely annihilate them. But in the process, one of the leaders of the Indian troops, the heir to the throne, Baban's son Muhammad Khan, is amongst the casualties. Balban announces a new heir, his grandson, K. Kusro. But following his death in 1287, some nobles appoint a young man named Muizuddin Kaikabad instead. Kaikabad is another one of these figures who's supposed to be a figurehead. He's a notorious alcoholic. And... Unfortunately for the people who want a figurehead in place, he grows ill fairly quickly, probably due to alcoholism. And it is here that we meet the next major figure in the story of the Delhi Sultanate, a man named Jalaluddin Khalji. Khalji is the descendant of a long line of Turkic nobles who have been nobility in Afghanistan for over 200 years before Muhammad of Gore's invasion. And so, by this point, by 1290, they've been nobility for over 300 years. And this will define the difference between the next Delhi Sultanate dynasty and the first one, the slave dynasty. Up until now, the leaders have all been slaves, or the children of slaves. Well, this guy, Jalaluddin Khalji, is as blue-blooded as they come. And he's about to become the new sultan. See, when Kaikabad grows ill, Jalaluddin swoops in and sort of takes the younger Kaikabad, his son, he takes the younger Kaikabad under his wing, acting as a mentor while supposedly caring for the old sultan. But in January 1290, 
Right after only being sultan for three years, the elder Kaikabad dies while in Jalaluddin's custody. Right, while he's supposedly being cared for, and rumors are that Jalaluddin had him killed. But Jalaluddin manages to remain as regent for the younger Kaikabad for a few months as his mentor and friend before having him murdered on June 13, 1290. This marks the official end of the slave dynasty and the beginning of the Kalji dynasty. Now, considering that Jalal-ud-Din just befriended a young man, became his mentor, killed his father, and then killed the young man to gain power, you might think that the Delhi Sultanate is in for some pretty dark times. But surprisingly, that doesn't seem to be the case. See, as it turns out, 70-year-old Jalaluddin Khalji is a pretty mild-mannered ruler, and he is so mild-mannered, in fact, that it will be his undoing. He keeps forgiving the wrong people. See, at this time, there is a governor, a man named Malik Chaju, who rules the region of Kara. This is an area along the Ganges River in northeast India. It is a fairly well-to-do area, produces a lot of food, and this guy, Malik Chaju, is Balban's nephew and has some ideas of maybe becoming sultan himself. Within two months of Jalaluddin taking power, he launches a revolt. Now, Jalaluddin is a competent military leader. He ends up ambushing Chaju's army at night, capturing everybody, but Chaju himself was warned and had abandoned his men to their fate and taken off, but he's captured a few days later and the revolt has ended. Well, as soon as this happens, Jalaluddin immediately forgives Malik Chaju and puts him back in charge as the governor of Kara and then goes home. Well, Chaju revolts again and Jalaluddin comes back and arrests him and this time has him imprisoned for life, but in luxurious house arrest in very nice conditions. And this time he appoints his own son-in-law, Alauddin Khalji, as the new governor of Kara. And then Jalaluddin goes off to fight successfully against the Mongols in the west. But in the meantime, this son-in-law, who he's put in charge of this prosperous region, well, Alauddin's home life is miserable. Uh, apparently, he and his wife do not get along. Their home life is just nothing but fighting. And by the way, his mother-in-law is also living with them and is always taking his wife's side in their arguments. I mean, just the stereotype of the opposite of wedded bliss here. And while Jalaluddin gets to go off to war... Uh, Alauddin is sitting at home in Kara dealing with all of this. So what does he do? 
he conspires with local nobles to launch another rebellion out of Kara. But this time, he's not going to try and defeat Jalal Uddin in battle. All right, Malik Chaju tried that twice and lost. No, Al-Uddin is going to use the power of treachery. In the summer of 1296, Al-Uddin launches a cavalry raid on a neighboring governor. Now, by all accounts, this is not a huge raid. He basically leads a few dozen guys across the border and, and raids a few farms. But it's enough to make the neighboring governor complain to the sultan that cavalry from a neighboring province are attacking his people. And Jalaluddin, when he hears this, naturally enough, assumes that Alauddin has launched a revolt and he leads his army towards the province of Kara. Well, Alauddin sends a message saying that the raid was launched by some other rebellious nobles and he wants to meet with Jalaluddin, and, and would Jalaluddin just please send a letter of pardon so he knows everything's okay? So Jalaluddin immediately sends a letter of pardon absolving Alauddin for any responsibility in this cavalry raid. And you know, when his army arrives at the Ganges, he meets with some emissaries from Alauddin and agrees to get on a boat to go meet his son-in-law. And as a sign of goodwill, he takes with him an unarmed honor guard. And he gets on the boat and goes the rest of the way to Kara. And when he arrives, Aladdin falls at his feet and begs his forgiveness. And according to the story, Jalaluddin forgives his son-in-law immediately and kisses him on the cheek and says, how could you be so ridiculous as to think I wouldn't forgive you? And at that point, Alauddin signals one of his own guards who stabs the sultan in the back. At that point, Alauddin immediately declares himself sultan and then has the old sultan's head cut off and paraded throughout eastern India as a trophy. Oh, and the rest of Jalal Uddin's unarmed retinue, well, they're just unceremoniously slaughtered back on the boat. After all of this, Aladdin has come to a conclusion. As the new sultan, he has decided that the nobles are too powerful. He thinks that it is too easy to overthrow a sultan. Perhaps it is understandable why he thinks this, but Aladdin identifies three main reasons why the Sultanate is so vulnerable to coups. He says they are intermarriage between the noble families, which creates all kinds of interests contrary to the state. He says that the spy system is not efficient enough. And finally, he says that there's too much alcohol. There's this pervasive culture of drunkenness in the Delhi aristocracy that puts ideas of rebellion into people's heads that normal sober people would never consider. 
When Aladdin takes the throne in 1296, he is 30 years old, so he'll have 20 years to address these issues. And address them he does. Aladdin is famous for passing four ordinances. The first is a financial reform bill. And this is important. He abolishes the feudal revenue system. We saw just a generation earlier Balban abolishing the old feudal military levy system. Well, now Aladdin abolishes the revenue aspect of that system, and he makes all land taxes payable directly to the sultan. Without being the middlemen, the nobles will not be able to profit off that tax or skim any off the top, and that is by design. Aladdin wants his nobles to be busy, engaged in business that will be good for the country, and inadvertently, you know, they'll be earning money for themselves too, but what they're not going to be doing is sitting idly and plotting rebellion. And this tax system would actually outlive the Delhi Sultanate itself. It would remain through most of the Mughal period, uh, well into the 1800s. And as a sidebar, this tax in 1296, it required a massive formal survey of all the land in the Sultanate. I have to determine how much area each plot is. Well, this is one of the first large-scale surveys anywhere in history. Aladdin's second ordinance is an ordinance tightening up the espionage system, centralizing control with the sultan and removing most of the bureaucrats from the process. As his third move... Aladdin bans the sale of alcohol, cannabis, and other intoxicants. And he actually goes so far as to have drunks kicked out of the city of Delhi. So if you're out on the street in Delhi and you're found to be drunk, the guards will literally haul you off to the nearest city gate and eject you. This last measure, this prohibition... Aladdin would eventually soften on that. It would become clear that he couldn't stop a black market from forming. It, it was a lot like the American experience with prohibition. And Aladdin would eventually allow private consumption of alcohol. Right? No more taverns, no public drunkenness. But you know, if you're raising a little wine on your farm and you're having your party behind closed doors, the sultan was not going to bother you. Oh, and he would also ban prostitution and gambling. Finally, as his fourth ordinance, Aladdin banned all public meetings anywhere in the sultanate without the personal permission of the sultan. Yeah, and this is to reduce the risk of revolt. If you don't want people conspiring, just make it illegal to hold public meetings. 
You may be able to whisper behind closed doors, but you're not going to have an opportunity to whip the mob up into a frenzy. Well, those first reforms we talked about, right, the revenue reforms of Aludin, changing the way taxes are raised, well, with those reforms, he is able to raise a very large standing army. According to the Renaissance-era Persian historian M.K. Frishta, Haladin raised over 475,000 cavalrymen. We know that ancient and medieval numbers are often inflated, but even if he was only raising half that, when you compare that to the number of troops in the entire Crusader coalitions, for example, being raised at this time, that is a huge number of troops. It's a sign of a very powerful empire. And Aladdin is able to do this not just by reforming revenue, but by paying his troops in cash and then maintaining nationwide price controls to ensure that their wages retain value. And by the way, when I say cash, I mean silver. So, Aladdin divides the Sultanate's market into four sectors. So there are separate controls for one sector, which is grain, another which is cloth, sugar, fruits, and oils, another which is horses, slaves, and cattle, and a fourth sector for everything else. And there is a government minister put in charge of this and of determining what the prices for everything is going to be. And if that's not enough, he then will send slaves throughout the empire with money to go to markets and buy goods. And if the merchants are not charging the prices they're supposed to charge, the slaves will go and report them to the local authorities. So this does a pretty effective job at encouraging compliance. Now, early on, Aladdin would try to use this massive army he's raised to attack against the Mongols. The Mongols at this time are in control of Afghanistan, right across some major mountain passes from India. In total, Aladdin will launch six raids. Uh, the first two are successful. The next four are not. Right? They result in very high casualties among Aladdin's troops for very little gain. So after these failures, he returns to the same defensive policy that Balban had used. Right? He reinforces these border fortresses. He keeps heavy patrols up between them. Uh, uses a lot of natural barriers along this border to you know, make sure that the Mongols are not going to be able to easily get into the Delhi Sultanate. And in 1305, the next year, this proves very effective. But the Mongols can't get across at all from Afghanistan, at least not with any kind of surprise. They instead attack 
across the Himalayan foothills in the east, and all the way on the other side of India. But with the Himalayans blocking their route north and the massive defensive fortifications in the west, when Aladdin's cavalry-heavy force would come after them, they had nowhere to run, and this Mongol army is trapped inside the Delhi Sultanate, and they are caught and defeated, and over 8,000 Mongol heads are cut off and put on display. A year later, in 1306, more or less the same thing would happen. Some Mongols would sneak around some of the border defenses and get inside and start raiding, and then Aladdin's army would capture them and kill almost all of them, and after that raid in 1306, the Mongols would never again attack India. Ever. And Alauddin would take advantage more or less immediately. Starting in 1307, he would turn his attention to the south. And over the next six years, from 1307 to 1313, he would conquer the entire Deccan Plateau. That is a fairly large area in west-central India. Had been home to several minor kingdoms before then. And he would even subjugate uh, some of these smaller kingdoms further south and uh, to the east and force them to become vassals and pay tribute. Now, in his older years, Aladdin would come to rely on the advice of an advisor named Malik Kafur. Malik Kafur is a Muslim convert of Hindu origin and one of Aladdin's most trusted generals. He's also a eunuch, and many historians think that Kafur and Aladdin were lovers, although this is by no means confirmed. But what is confirmed is that Kafur seems to have worried excessively about whether Aladdin's family might have been plotting against him. Right? He advises Aladdin to have two of his own sons blinded uh, in fear that they might try and take the throne from him. When Aladdin dies in 1316, Kafur briefly takes the reins. He acts as regent for Aladdin's six-year-old son, Shababuddin Omar. But within a month, a group of nobles who were sympathetic to Aladdin's older sons who had been blinded, well, they have Kafur killed. And as the new regent, they install an elder son of Aladdin, Mubarak Shah. And just a few months later, in April of 1316, the very young sultan, Shababuddin, would die of a childhood illness, and this older son of Aladdin's, Mubarak Shah, well, he would take over as sultan. And Mubarak Shah would lead a handful of military campaigns, but he did very little else of note. In 1320, only four years after taking the throne, he himself would be overthrown in a palace coup by a former Hindu noble named Khusrau Khan, and 
much as with Alauddin and Malik Kafur, well, Khosrau Khan may or may not have been a lover of Mubarak Shah. Well, Khan rules for less than two months before being killed in a battle against a coalition of other nobles. And this coalition would be led by a man named Giath al-Din Tukluk. Giath al-Din Tukluk would be the founder of the third Delhi Sultanate dynasty, the Tukluk dynasty. This would officially begin when he is made sultan on September 6, 1320. Prior to becoming the sultan, Tukluk had been the governor of Dipalpur, which is an area in modern-day Pakistan. This is an area near the Mongol frontier, and he was a man with a great deal of military experience. He would continue in the tradition of El Adin. He would conquer towards the south, he would lead a handful of successful military campaigns, and extend the Delhi Sultanate's reach further into southern and eastern India than ever before. He would reign for only five years, though. Much like the founder of the slave dynasty, the founder of the Tukluk dynasty would come to an early end, and this would come on the campaign trail while he was meeting for a peace conference and a wooden pavilion would collapse on him and kill him. Well, Giath al-Din Tukluk is succeeded by his oldest son, Muhammad bin Tukluk. Muhammad bin Tukluk would reign for 26 years, and he is such an iconic leader that most historians just call him Tukluk. And there are some allegations that he himself conspired to kill his father so he could take the throne earlier. These are unproven allegations, although they are backed up by the Moroccan historian Ibn Battuta, who met him in person. Even so, unproven allegations, but even if he didn't kill his dad, Tukluk is one of the most fascinating sultans in the history of the Sultanate. To begin with, Tukluk is known for his religious tolerance. While he himself is a devout Muslim, he's more interested in monetary policy and political unity than in converting his Hindu subjects. And as a matter of fact, he will even use the Hindu religion a number of times to provide carrots and sticks. So in regions that are loyal to him, he actually uses imperial funds to help to rebuild Hindu temples that were damaged or destroyed by earlier Muslim regimes. But if you're one of the people who's living in a region that's not so loyal, well, maybe you won't get your temples rebuilt. It's that kind of approach. Tukluk is also highly educated, and this is unusual for Delhi sultans. 
Aladdin, for example, was completely illiterate. He came up with his four ordinances, but he actually had to have someone else write them down for him. Tukluk, on the other hand, has received extensive education in religion and philosophy and carries books with him whenever he travels. And he's also perhaps more ambitious than is good for him or his people. Early on in his reign, he tries to establish a second capital in Devagiri, which is a non-existent city in the southern part of India. It's basically a fort, but he decides he's going to build this new administrative capital there, and to do this out of nothing, he literally orders tens of thousands of citizens to move from Delhi to this site at Devagiri. This is a distance of over 930 miles in hot, sweltering weather in the medieval era. Literally thousands of people die on the way on this forced march due to the summer heat and the lack of supplies. And when they arrive at this place they're expecting to find a city, there's literally nothing. There's like a little fort and no food and no plan and no way to house these people. And realizing that this is just a complete disaster, Tukluk orders all of the people to then return to Delhi, and thousands more die on the return journey. It would be funny if so many people didn't die in the process. This is an avoidable blunder, but there are other events happening in the world right now that Tukluk cannot control starting in the early years of his reign, the supply of silver began to dry up. And there are a number of proposed reasons for this. Tried to find out why the supply of silver begins to dry up. There are several theories, nothing I found particularly satisfying as a catch-all explanation. For one example... Mines throughout Eurasia saw huge drops in productivity during the Black Death, but that wouldn't happen for a good 17 years later. But where we are in our story, as early as 1329, mints from London to Delhi and as far as China are all running out of silver simultaneously. The Chinese under Kublai Khan even switched to paper currency, which led to disastrous hyperinflation and people carrying around wheelbarrows of money. And Tukluk tries an alternate solution. Rather than paper, he's going to use copper. In this copper currency, these Coins that were being struck in copper instead of silver, well, they came to be known as token currency. The problem is that initially, once they're issued, no one wants them because there is no agreed-upon value for these copper coins, and the economy grinds to a halt. So, Tukluk is once again forced to reverse himself and establish an agreed-upon exchange rate for silver to token currency, and then buy the token currency back from the people 
with his own silver money. These coins are so worthless that contemporary writers talk about sacks of copper coins being abandoned on the roadside, and now Tukluk has managed to buy back all these worthless copper coins, and now he's created another problem for himself. His treasury is empty, with the exception of these worthless coins, so now he's forced to raise the land taxes. Well, that's no good. The economy's already in a shambles, and when we're talking about ancient times, people are on the edge of survival, so a little bit of financial stress can put them into starvation fairly easily, and that's what happens. Farmers can't keep enough produce to live on. So rather than you know, stay on their farms and keep farming until they starve from all the food they don't get to keep, they just abandon their farms and move to the cities. Well, this creates another problem. There's even less food being produced than before, so prices go up more and more people starve. And this creates a cycle because now the farmers who were just kind of on the edge, well, with prices continuing to rise, now they're into starvation and they're running to the cities. And so Tukluk enforces harsh penalties for people fleeing their farms and he uses the army to go and round up peasants and press gang them back onto the farms so that somebody is making food. Once again, he needs to readjust. He founds an agricultural ministry, another large government bureaucracy like you would see today. And this ministry creates a program to lend seeds to the peasants at a discounted rate. It's tough to explain. I had trouble understanding it. It's, it's sort of similar to a modern futures market. They borrow seed and then they get a guaranteed payback on whatever produce they make so they know they're going to be able to pay taxes and eat and make profit on top of that. But uh, however exactly it works, uh, Tukluk spends over 7 million silver coins on this. We're not sure what denomination. Uh, the sources I found say, quote, 70 locks, which is 70 times 100,000. So 7 million, but large or small coins, we don't know. But this program is successful right? with a reliable way to get seed and turn a profit. Uh, the peasants go back to their farms and start farming again, and the economy returns to normal. There is trouble brewing on the horizon, though. Some revolts about to break out. But first, let's inject a little color into the Delhi Sultanate in this era. There is a Moroccan traveler named Ibn Battuta who was trekking across the world at this time. He went all the way from Morocco in northwest Africa to China, sort of the Muslim Marco Polo. And much like Marco Polo, he wrote a book. He wrote a book called A Gift to Those Who Contemplate the Wonders of Cities and the Marvels of Traveling. And in that book, Batuta spends 
several chapters describing his travels through the Delhi Sultanate. I won't read all of it, it's far too long, but here is one chapter from that book. And yes, this is a fairly long quote, but I feel like so much of what we've talked about today has been kind of dry. And there's a liveliness to this empire Batuta describes that is worth exploring and appreciating. Without further ado, here is what Ibn Battuta says of his trip through the Delhi Sultanate. He says, quote, Let us now return to the description of our arrival at Delhi. When we arrived at this place, the vizier having previously met us, we came to the door of the Sultan's harem, to the place in which his mother, El Makdumi Johan, resides. The vizier, also known as the Kazi of the palace, being still with us. These paid their respects at the entrance, and we all followed their example. We also, each of us, sent his present to her, which was proportionate to his circumstances. The queen's secretaries then registered these presents and informed her of them. The presents were accepted, and we were ordered to be seated. Her maids were then brought in and we received the greatest respect and attention in their odd way. After this, robes of honor were put on us, and we were ordered to withdraw to such places as it had been prepared for each of us. We made our obeisance and retired accordingly. This service is presented by one's bowing the head, placing the hands on the earth, and then retiring. When I had got to the house prepared for me, I found it furnished with every carpet, vessel, couch, and fuel one could desire. The victuals which they brought us consisted of flour, rice, and flesh, all of which was brought from the mother of the emperor. Every morning we paid our respects to the vizier, who on one occasion gave me two thousand dinars and said, This is to enable you to get your clothes washed. He also gave me a large robe of honor, and to my attendants, who amounted to about forty, he gave also two thousand dinars. After this, the emperor's allowance was brought to us, which amounted to the weight of one thousand deli writs of flour, where every writ is equal to five and twenty writs of Egypt. We also had one thousand writs of flesh and of fermented liquors, oil, olive oil, and the betel nut, many writs, and also the betel leaf. During this time, and in the absence of the emperor, a daughter of mine happened to die, which the vizier communicated to him. The emperor's distance from Delhi was that of ten stages. Nevertheless, the vizier had an answer from him on the morning of the day on which the funeral was to take place. His orders were that what was usually done on the death of any of the children of the nobility should be done now. On the third day, therefore, the vizier came with the judges and nobles who spread a carpet and made the necessary preparations, consisting of incense, rose water, readers of the Koran, and panegyrists. When I proceeded with the funeral, I expected nothing of this, but upon seeing their company I was much gratified. The vizier on this occasion occupied the station of the emperor, defraying every expense, and distributing the victuals to the poor and others, and giving money to the readers, according to the order which he had received from the emperor. 
After this, the emperor's mother sent for the mother of the child and gave her dresses and ornaments, exceeding 1,000 dinars in value. She also gave her 1,000 dinars in money and dismissed her on the second day. During the absence of the emperor, the vizier showed me the greatest kindness on the part of himself as well as on that of his master. Soon after, the news of the emperor's approach was received, stating that he was within seven miles of Delhi, and ordering the vizier to come and meet him. He went out accordingly, accompanied by those who had arrived for the purpose of being presented, each taking his present with him. In this manner, we proceeded till we arrived at the gate of the palace in which he then was. At this place, the secretaries took account of the several presents, and also brought them before the emperor. The presents were then taken away, and the travelers were presented, each according to the order in which he had been arranged. When my turn came, I went in and presented my service in the usual manner, and was very graciously received, the emperor taking my hand and promising me every kindness. To each of the travelers he gave a robe of honor, embroidered with gold which had been worn by himself, and one of these he also gave to me. After this, we met without the palace, and gifts were handed about for some time. On this occasion, the travelers ate, the vizier with the great emirs standing over them as servants. We then retired. After this, the emperor sent to each of us one of the horses of his own stud, adorned and caparisoned with a saddle of silver. He then placed us at his front with the vizier, and rode on till he arrived at his palace in Delhi. On the third day after our arrival, each of the travelers presented himself at the gate of the palace. When the emperor sent to inquire whether there were any among us who wished to take office, either as a writer, a judge, or a magistrate, saying that he would give such appointments. Each, of course, gave an answer suitable to his wishes. For my own part, I answered, I have no desire either for rule or for ridership, but the office both of judge and of magistrate, myself and my fathers, have filled. These replies were carried to the emperor, who commanded that each person to be brought before him, and he gave them each such an appointment as would suit him, bestowing on him at the same time a robe of honor and a horse furnished with an ornamented saddle. He also gave him money, appointing likewise the amount of his salary, which was to be drawn from the treasury. He also appointed a portion of the produce of the villages, which each was to receive annually according to his rank. When I was called, I went in and did homage. The vizier said, The Lord of the world appoints you to the office of judge in Delhi. He also gives you a robe of honor with a saddled horse, as also twelve thousand dinars for your present support. He has moreover appointed you a yearly salary of 12,000 dinars and a portion of lands in the villages, which will produce annually an equal sum. I then did homage according to their custom and withdrew. We shall now proceed to give some account of the Emperor Muhammad, son of Giyath Odin, Togluk, then of our entering and leaving Hindustan. In some cases, this emperor was one of the most bountiful and splendidly munificent men but in other cases, one of the most impetuous and inexorable, and very seldom indeed did it happen that pardon followed his anger. On one occasion, he took offense at the inhabitants of Delhi 
on account of the numbers of its inhabitants who had revolted and the liberal support which these had received from the rest. And to such a pitch did the quarrel rise that the inhabitants wrote a letter consisting of several pages, in which they very much abused him. Then they sealed it up and directed it to the real head and lord of the world, adding, Let no other person read it. Then they threw it over the gate of the palace. Those who saw it could do no other than send it to him, and he read it accordingly. The consequence was, he ordered all the inhabitants to quit the palace, and, upon some delay being evinced, he made a proclamation stating that what person soever, being inhabitant of that city, should be found in any of its houses or streets, should receive punishment. Upon this they all went out. But his servants finding a blind man in one of the houses, and a bedridden one in another, the emperor commanded that the bedridden man be projected from a ballista, and the blind one to be dragged by his feet to Dalwadabad, which is at the distance of ten days. And he was so dragged. But his limbs dropping off by the way, only one of his legs was brought to the place intended, and was then thrown into it. For the order had been that they should go there to this place. When I entered Delhi, it was almost a desert. Its buildings were very few. In other respects, it was quite empty, its houses having been forsaken by its inhabitants. The king, however, had given orders that anyone who wished to leave his own city may come and reside there. The consequence was that the greatest city in the world had the fewest inhabitants. Upon a certain occasion, too, the principal of the preachers, who was then keeper of the jewelry, happened to be outwitted by some of the infidel Hindus, which came by night and stole some jewels. For this he beat the man to death with his own hand. Upon another occasion, one of the emirs of Fargana came to pay him a temporary visit. The emperor received him very kindly and bestowed on him some rich presents. After this, the emir had a wish to return, but was afraid the emperor would not allow him to do so. He began, therefore, to think of flight. Upon this, a whisperer gave intimation of his design, and the emir was put to death. The whole of his wealth was then given to the informers, for this is their custom, that when anyone gives private intimation of the designs of another, and this information turns out to be true, the person so informed of is put to death, and his property is given to the informer. There was at that time, in the city of Kambaya, on the shores of India, a sheik of considerable power and note, named the Sheik Ali Haidar, to whom the merchants and seafaring men made many votive offerings. This sheik was in the habit of making many predictions for them. But when the Qazi Jalaf Odin Afghani rebelled against the emperor, it was told him that the sheik Haidar had sent for this Qazi Jalaf Odin and given him the cap off his own head. Upon this, the emperor set out for the purpose of making war upon the Qazi Jolof Odin, whom he put to flight. He then returned to his palace, leaving behind him an emir who should make inquiry respecting others who had joined the Qazi. The inquiry accordingly went on, and those who had done so were put to death. The sheik was then brought forward, and when it was proved that he had given his cap to the Qazi, he also was slain. The Sheikh Ha'ad, son of the Sheikh Baha'odam Zakaria, 
was also put to death on account of some spite which he himself would wreak upon him. This was one of the greatest sheiks. His crime was that his uncle's son had rebelled against the emperor when he was acting as governor in one of the provinces of India. So war was made upon him, and being overcome, his flesh was roasted with some rice and thrown to the elephants to be devoured. But they refused to touch it. Upon a certain day, when I myself was present, some men were brought out who had been accused of having attempted the life of the vizier. They were ordered accordingly to be thrown to the elephants, which had been taught to cut their victims to pieces. Their hooves were cased with sharp iron instruments, and the extremities of these were like knives. On such occasions the elephant driver rode upon them, and when a man was thrown to them, they would wrap the trunk about him and toss him up, then take him with the teeth and throw him between their forefeet upon the breast, and do just as the driver should bid them, and according to the orders of the emperor. If the order was to cut him to pieces, the elephant would do so with his irons, and then throw the pieces among the assembled multitude. But if the order was to leave him, he would be left lying before the emperor until the skin should be taken off and stuffed with hay, and the flesh given to the dogs." Unquote. Pausing here to reiterate, one of the methods of execution involves the condemned being torn to pieces by an elephant and the body parts just sort of thrown out into the audience during the process. Imagine that kind of grim souvenir. Continuing, our narrator, Ibn Battuta, the Moroccan traveler, says, quote, On one occasion, one of the emirs, namely the Ain el-Muk, who had the charge of the elephants and beasts of burden, revolted, and took away the greater part of these beasts, and went over the Ganges. At the time, the emperor was on his march towards the Mabar districts, against the Emar Jolof Odin. Upon this occasion the people of the country proclaimed the runaway emperor, but an insurrection arising, the matter soon came to an end. Another of his emirs, namely Halajun, also revolted, and sallied out of Delhi with a large army. The viceroy in the district of Talingana also rebelled, and made an effort to obtain the kingdom, and very nearly succeeded on account of the great number who were then in rebellion, and the weakness of the army of the emperor for a pestilence had carried off the greater part. From his extreme good fortune, however, he got the victory, collected his scattered troops, and subdued the rebellious emirs, killing some, torturing others, and pardoning the rest. He then returned to his residence, repaired his affairs, strengthened his empire, and took vengeance on his enemies. But let me now return to the account of my own affairs with him when he had appointed me to the office of Judge of Delhi, had made the necessary arrangements and given me the presents already mentioned, the horses prepared for me and for the other emirs who were about his person were sent to each of us, who severally kissed the hoof of the horse of him who brought them, and then led our own to the gate of the palace. We then entered, and each put on a robe of honor, after which we came out, mounted, and returned to our houses." The emperor said to me on this occasion, Do not suppose that our office of judge of Delhi will cost you little trouble. On the contrary, it will require the greatest attention. 
I understood what he said, but did not return him a good answer. He understood the Arabic and was not pleased with my reply. I am, said I, of the sect of Ibn Malik, but the people of Delhi follow the local customs of Hanafi. Besides, I am ignorant of their language. He replied, I have appointed two learned men as your deputies who will advise you. It will be your business to sign the legal instruments. He then added, If what I have appointed prove not an income sufficient to meet your numerous expenses, I have likewise given you a cell, the bequests appropriated to which you may expend, taking this in addition to what is already appointed. I thanked him for this and returned to my house. A few days after this he made me a present of twelve thousand dinars. In a short time, however, I found myself involved in great debts amounting to about fifty-five thousand dinars, according to the computation of India, which with them amounts to five thousand five hundred tankas, but which, according to the computation of the West, will amount to thirteen thousand dinars. The reason of this debt was the great expenses incurred in waiting on the emperor during his journeys to repress the revolt of Aini Mulk. About this time, I composed a panegyric in praise of the emperor, which I wrote in Arabic and read to him. He translated it for himself and was wonderfully pleased with it, for the Indians are fond of Arabic poetry and are very desirous of being memorialized in it. I then informed him of the debt I had incurred, which he ordered to be discharged from his own treasury, and said, Take care in future not to exceed the extent of your income. May God reward him. Sometime after the emperor's return from the Malbar districts, and his ordering my residence in Delhi, his mind happened to change respecting a sheik in whom he had placed great confidence, and even visited, and who then resided in a cave without the city. He took him accordingly and imprisoned him, and then interrogated his children as to who had resorted to him. They named the persons who had done so, and myself among the rest, for it happened that I had visited him in the cave. I was consequently ordered to attend at the gate of the palace, and a council to sit within. I attended in this way for four days, and few were those who did so who escaped death. I betook myself, however, to continued fasting and tasted nothing but water. On the first day I repeated the sentence, God is our support and the most excellent patron, three thousand and thirty times. And after the fourth day, by God's goodness I was delivered. But the sheik and all those who had visited him except myself were put to death. Upon this I gave up the office of judge, and bidding farewell to the world, attached myself to the holy and pious sheik and saint and phoenix of his age, Kamal Odin Abdullah el Ghazal, who had then wrought many open miracles. All I had I gave to the fakirs, and, putting on the tunic of one of them, I attached myself to this sheik for five months, until I had kept a fast of five continued days. I then breakfasted on a little rice." And there you have it, this experienced, worldly man, Ibn Battuta of Morocco, is so traumatized by experiences in the court of the Delhi Sultan that when he finally gets away, he runs off to a monastery for five months of fasting just to recuperate. Now, his story would, of course, go on to be a happy one. Ibn Battuta would 
accept a position as an ambassador to China and go on a mission there before making his return to Morocco eventually. His time in the Delhi Sultanate was done, but for many people, it was their home and they still lived there. And by the year 1350, in this colorful land of Tukluk, rebellion is looming on the horizon and not just a few local uprisings. There are multiple rebellions throughout the empire. By the year 1351, things are even more desperate, with slaves in the north and Hindus in the south both asserting their own independence. Can Mohammed bin Tukluk retain his crown? And what would become of the Delhi Sultanate, this massive Muslim North Indian power? We'll talk about that and a lot more in the final part of Crossroads of Civilization. Hello again, it's Dan, and I'm here to let you know about a few things we are doing to grow the show here at Relevant History. First off, there is now a monthly video series called Dan's War College. In that series, I, myself, do a video presentation on a particular battle from history and break down the tactics and the strategy involved. If that sounds like something you'd be interested in, that is available at the Relevant History Patreon page. And that video, along with access to a private Discord server and, of course, a shout-out on the show, well, that can all be had for the low, low price of $5 a month. But if that's not enough, I'm also doing a monthly audio series called Irrelevant History, where we discuss silly or quirky events from history. That show, along with a couple of other shows from other people, well, those are all available on the Salad Tossers Patreon channel, and that is only $1 a month. And just like the Relevant History Patreon channel, you can find the link for that in the description. And of course, if you'd like to hear more episodes, they're available on every major podcast service, most of the minor ones, and at dantollerpodcast.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast.com. Don't forget to share the show with your friends and leave reviews on your favorite service. Every little bit helps, and if you'd like to get in touch, you can find the show on Twitter at dantollerpodcast, that's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast, or on Facebook at dantoller, T-O-L-E-R. Finally, you can... Email me directly at dantollerpodcast at gmail.com. That's dan, T-O-L-E-R, podcast at gmail.com. Hope to hear from you soon.